This episode deals with a lot of sexual assault and violence, so if you are sensitive to stories about this topic, please do not listen any further. Many of us have had times when we had a problem but did not know how to solve it. Some people like me do not seek help from others relying on ourselves to remedy the situation. Some people have family and friends who they ask advice from. Seeking advice from older people or your peers can be very helpful. Others seek out places called self-help groups. A self-help group is composed of individuals who meet regularly to help one another cope with a life problem. Whether this issue is in your personal life or dealing with your professional, those who do not have someone to rely on would naturally benefit from these groups because they are connected with peers and others from all walks of life. So there is a lot that can be gained from these kinds of organizations. But what if a self-help group was designed to destroy you? What if their motto was a fabrication intended to isolate you from your loved ones, commit crimes, and other atrocities? Welcome to another episode of Crimson Sin with Tamsin Lee. I am your host, Tamsin Lee. Full show notes and sources can be found at tamsinleecrimsonsin.podbean.com. This episode also contains violence and sexual nature. If you have experienced or are experiencing trauma, sexual violence, or assault, please know that there are organizations out there and people who want to help you. You can speak to a support specialist from the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 800-656-4673 or visit online.rain.org. Again, the hotline is 800-656-4673 or visit them online at online.rainrain.org. I will provide the phone number and link to the website in the show notes. So as a disclaimer, I'm going to say everything that I'm going to tell you is what I have read through respectable publications, documentaries of the victims and witnesses, and reputable sources. Therefore, anything that these people did not stand trial and prosecuted for is alleged or speculated. If I have a personal opinion, I will state that it is my personal opinion and not known to be fact My purpose for this episode is not to slander those involved or defamation of character. My purpose is to inform my listeners of such atrocities that have happened to better prepare themselves for the world when speaking of crime. For legal purposes, I feel it is necessary to explicitly point these out, and I am also slightly worried that I am going to make a powerful enemy when speaking of this case. (laughs) I'm not, I'm, I'm laughing, but I'm, I'm not choking because this, this, uh, case was, it, it really opened my eyes with how many, how much legal action was taken against people for just stating the facts. So I'm slightly worried, but again, I am only making this video because I think it's important to understand the world we live in. And I'm not saying that I want to make the video to scare people, you know, and not want to go outside or, you know, 
always looking over your shoulder. But I think it is important that we know how these people got got away with so many things for so long and understand it. That way we can better prepare ourselves so that we can be safe. Personally, I thought making an episode about this cult would be interesting. However, after reading through and watching the documentaries, I could not brace myself for all the horrible things that took place. I have never had to walk away from something and come back to it later. There was just so much wrong in this case. It gave me migraines trying to compile everything and keep it and to just keep the timelines correctly. Shocking footage and evidence just kept appearing. Like, you could not fully digest the first bit of information thrown your way before becoming overwhelmed with even more. And it just keeps going on and going on and going on in this case. I always thought cults would be a fascinating topic. And I think for anyone that these these cults are kind of fascinating. Not in a, ooh, I want to join a cult way, but just how those who have never been a part of a cult look at these cases wondering how these victims couldn't have known. I understand that. But also, I know that by the time the public hears of these organizations, their alleged crimes and activities have already come to light. So it's kind of like most of the stuff goes on behind the scenes, and those who are involved don't really, they don't really see that what's going on. So as someone looking in from the outside, we aren't there. We weren't there to see how everything unfolded. And also, I think it depends on the person's mindset at the time. Not to mention the psychological wars that these people play on their victims. So today we are going to talk about the cult Nexium. This case happened relatively recently. I remember seeing the news break about this case years ago. My memory of this case is primarily due to actresses associated with the group. This tumultuous cult was marketed as a self-help group and took advantage of the vulnerability of its members. The rampant manipulation of Nexium soon led to the creation of a secret society known for sex trafficking. So there are, there are many pivotal people in this case. There are going to be many names listed in this case, so many names, and many things were going on behind the scenes. With that in mind, some information may have been left out because during this case, there was just so much information, just too much inner workings. I tried to compile all of this information the best I could. So if there's anything that I left out, please feel free to comment. I also provided a way to contact me in the show notes. But like I said, there was so much going on that this episode is already going to be long. If I went through everything, this episode would probably be like a whole day. So I'm kind of going through the more pivotal moments in this case. Before diving into the infamous cult, let's learn a little about its leader, Keith Raniere. But first, do you think there were things in his early life that could have been warning signs of his future criminal schemes? Some people believe there were red flags. However, from the information I found, which disclaimer, I am not slandering him in any way, because this is my conclusion solely based on the facts that I was able to find. I thought that he had an enormous ego and wanted to be more intellectually than he actually was. Again, I am not slandering him. I will provide evidence for why I personally feel this way, and you can find these in the full show notes and sources. You can look and see and come to your own conclusion. So, Keith Raniere's early childhood. 
Keith Allen Raniere was born in Brooklyn, New York on August 26, 1960. His father, James Raniere, was an advertising executive and his mother, Vera Ashko, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, was a ballroom dancing instructor. Keith was their only child. When he was around five or six, the family moved from Brooklyn to Suffern, New York. By the time he was eight years old, his parents had separated, later divorcing. With his father out of the picture, Keith relied greatly on his mother for love, comfort, and support. Unfortunately, this dynamic would change as well. Soon, his mother would suffer from an illness that would ultimately require open-heart surgery. The teenage Raniere devoted much of his time caring for his mother, who started drinking heavily. Later in life, Keith would privately claim that his mother was an alcoholic. He attended Suffern High School in ninth grade before transferring to Rockland County Day School. He graduated two months before his 18th birthday in June 1978. Raniere reports reading Isaac Asimov's mind control novel, Second Foundation, at age 12, inciting it as an influence on Nexium. Barbara Boucher, a former girlfriend of Keith's, claimed that his father, James Raniere, once shared, What we did was tell Keith about how gifted he was. What we did was tell Keith about how gifted and how intelligent he was. It was almost like a switch went off. Furthermore, from this conversation, it was stated that Keith believed he was superior and better than everybody as if he were like a deity. His father told Boucher, the change in him was that dramatic and that profound. It happened overnight. It went straight to Keith's head. She even recounted a story of when Keith was 13 years old, when he would receive phone calls from many girls. Raniere's mother would hear the conversation when, where he would tell each one, I love you. You're the special one. You're important. You are the only one in my life and I love you. When he was 17, he left his ailing mother to attend Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, RPI, and took high-level math and science classes. In August of 1978, he returned home for his 18th birthday party, which Keith turned into a tribute to his mother. In December of that year, his mother passed away a week before his final exams. Keith graduated from RPI in 1982 with a 2.26 GPA. He failed or barely passed many of the high-level math and science classes which he bragged about taking. The Albany Times Union reported in 1984 that Raniere allegedly had a sexual relationship with a 15-year-old girl named Gina M, whom he met at a theater group. I just put her initial as M. You can look it up and find the people's actual names if you want to. So, after their relationship ran its course, Gina M introduced him to a friend of hers, who was also 15 years old at the time. Coincidentally, her name was Gina as well, but her last name started with an H. So this is Gina H. And he was accused of having a sexual relationship with her. When he was caught climbing into her bedroom window by her sister, he stated the young girl was a Buddhist goddess meant to be with him. 
In June 1988, the Times Union reported Ranieri's membership in the Mega Society after achieving a high score on Ronald K. Hofflin's Mega Test. The creator of this test, Ronald K. Hofflin, was a member of Mensa, Intertel, and the International Society of Philosophical Inquiry. He also co-founded and was a member of the Triple Nine Society, as well as the Prometheus Society and the Mega Society. Hoflin and Kevin Langdon developed an IQ test to measure adult IQs greater than three standard deviations from the median, or IQ 145. Hoflin's mega test consists of 48 questions, half verbal and half mathematical, that are unsupervised and without a time limit. So, my personal opinion about this, how can you base someone's intelligence unsupervised? That makes no sense to me. So please, take this information about his IQ with a grain of salt. He graduated with a 2.26 GPA, which, okay, someone could be terrible in a testing environment and do poorly on tests, but the tests don't take up the entirety of your GPA. Again, I have, I have doubt that the testing environment was, had anything to do with it. No matter who the person is, if the test is unsupervised, the test needs to be supervised. So now we're going to talk about Ranire's early adulthood. So in his early adulthood, he spent most of his time in multi-level marketing. He dedicated most of his time in the 1980s to Amway before starting his own multi-level marketing business in the 1990s called Consumers Byline Inc. or CBI. His Buddhist goddess, Gina H., worked at CBI for an undetermined amount of time. It was discovered that she had died of a gunshot wound on the grounds of Karma Triana Dharma Chakra Buddhist Monastery in Woodstock on October 11, 2002. Suicide was determined to be the cause of death. And this is where I say brace yourselves because this was just one of many mysterious deaths or missing people that surround Ranire. At CBI, Keith met Tony Natalie at a pitch meeting. She was a top salesperson for the company along with her then husband. Later, Tony and her son moved to Clifton Park, New York to be close to Keith. Tony and her husband's marriage soon ended after this. Then, for the next eight years, Ranire and Tony dated. In 1993, regulators in 20 states launched an investigation into CBI. The same year, New York filed a lawsuit against the entity, alleging that it was a pyramid scheme. In 1994, Keith started a new organization called National Health Network, which sold vitamins. This venture only lasted three years before ultimately failing. By September 1996, the CBI was shut down by the Attorney General of New York due to the investigation that had grown to 25 states. He signed a consent order to resolve the case dealing with CBI. He allegedly did not admit wrongdoing and agreed to pay $40,000. However, he only paid $9,000 to the state, claiming he could not bear the remainder despite having a multi-million dollar net worth. During this time, Ranire and Tony operated a health products store. Tony Natalie met Nancy Salzman in 1998. Salzman, which is another important person in this case. Salzman was a nurse and trained practitioner of hypnotism and neurolinguistic programming. 
Nancy Salzman would later become his accomplice and co-founder of Nexium. I could not find much about Nancy's early life other than that she was born on July 16, 1954. She was raised in Cranston, New Jersey and graduated from Cranford High School in 1972. Later, she would graduate from Muhlenberg College in Allentown, Pennsylvania. It is said that in the late 1970s, she started her career as a nurse and a therapist. She was married to Dr. Michael Salzman at one point in time. Nancy has two daughters, Lauren and Michelle, who are also members of this group. Nancy is listed in the Nurses database as having a nursing license from 1983 to 2019 when it expired. Therapists who study hypnosis and neurolinguistics learn to examine and mimic a person's language and speech patterns to alter behavior. Interestingly, this is something that Raniere had studied also. According to Tony, back in 1998, Nancy asked her if there was anything she could help her with, to which Tony replied, You can help me with my boyfriend. Nancy listened to Tony before replying, Oh, that's easy. I can help you. He's a sociopath. After four days with Raniere, Nancy was alleged to have come out with glazed eyes saying that Tony didn't know who he was. So not only did Nancy and Lauren, who was 21 at the time, meet Raniere in 1998, but another woman named Christine Marie Melanakos also met him. Christine was a recently divorced mother who also won the Miss Michigan title in 1995. According to her, Raniere once explained that a profound experience would often happen to women who would become intimate with him. She continued that Raniere said that often women would experience seeing a blue light. Sometime after, Christine said that she ultimately agreed to be intimate with him and that it was just as he said. I even saw a blue light. I don't think I told him so. I remember thinking, wow, my brain is really susceptible to the power of suggestion. <sighs> Moving on. So, Raniere and Salzman founded Executive Success Programs, or also known as ESP, a personal development company offering a range of techniques aimed at self-improvement. A few years later, the entity was rebranded as Nexium. This was when Raniere adopted the title of Vanguard. According to resources, he coined this name from his favorite arcade game. This arcade game came to North America in 1983, in which destroying one's enemies increased one's power which many games are like this, but I think because of everything that happened, this seems to be even more profound for this case. So in turn, Salzman would also be called Prefect. So we have Raniere being called Vanguard and Salzman going by Prefect. And you had to call these people those titles. You had to call Raniere Vanguard anytime you saw him, and you had to call Salzman Prefect anytime you saw her. I think if you didn't, it would be considered very rude. Much of Nexium was influenced by one of Raniere's favorite authors, Ayn Rand. I'm not sure if I'm saying her name correctly. Rand was a Russian-born American writer and philosopher for originating a philosophical system she named Objectivism. 
According to objectivism, the universe is open to human achievement and happiness, and each individual can live a rich, fulfilling, independent life. Which, personal opinion, this philosophical system sounds exceptional. So, how does objectivism become the influencer of Nexium? I'll tell you. The entire cult was constructed using various teachings from other philosophies, cults, and practices. So, Nexium was built kind of like a pyramid scheme. And within that pyramid scheme was a bunch of these different teachings from philosophy, other philosophies, cults, and practices. And it also had the dollar amount pyramid scheme within it. So, to name a few, Nexium was influenced by objectivism, Scientology, hypnosis, neuro-linguistic programming, theosophy, and Freemasonry. And there's more. So Nexium included components of multi-level marketing, as well as practices from judo, in which participants wore colored cloth for ranking and bowing. There are a lot more. I think I have a link to all of this in the full show notes so that you can look at it if you want. Again, if I went over everything that went on in this case, this podcast would be 24 hours. (laughs) So it is claimed that Raniere used fundamental psychological methods to elicit private information from his followers as blackmail. He also falsely claimed to his followers that he was a scientist. With his appearance and his supposed intellect, Many did not comprehend that this man could potentially be very dangerous. Again, when you look at a pic- this is my personal opinion, when you see a picture of him, you don't really think that he would be someone to start doing stuff like this. I mean, some other cult leaders, they seem to have like this wild look in their eyes, but with Renire, I don't really see that wild detached look. It was surprising to know at first that he was the leader of this group, but then after digging into it, I was like, oh wow. <laughs> it's it it was it was crazy. <laughs> and also something that really surprised me was that in the documentaries I watched, it was often stated that the victims would would be told that he was so smart. He was a scientist. He had this high IQ. And none of them really asked for evidence. So in 1999, Raniere's relationship with Tony ended, and she later accused Keith of harassment. During a hearing for this in January 2003, the judge presiding over the case stated that this matter oozes a jilted fellow's attempt at an act of revenge or retaliation against a former lover. The judge also wrote that Raniere tried tripping her up along the way. Tony stated that she thought she was being stalked. Her home was broken into a few times, her bed was a mess, and some of her clothing was missing. It is also speculated that one of the people who were watching Tony had poisoned her dog. Amid their relationship, Tony accused Raniere of brainwashing her to give up her son to her ex-husband because her sole purpose on earth, her words, she said that he told her that her sole purpose on earth was to bear Keith's child who would alter the course of history. 
Keith refutes these statements, saying that they were irrational. So, Rhaenyra is the leader of Nexium. Nancy is the co-founder and accomplice. Lauren and Michelle are higher-ups in the cult. So, in 2001, Lauren and Rhaenyra allegedly started a secret sexual relationship lasting about seven to eight years. Rhaenyra and Nancy Salzman successfully recruited heirs to the multi-billion dollar Seagram's fortune in 2002. Sarah Bronfman was the first to join, followed by her sister Claire. It is stated that Edgar Bronfman Sr., their father, took a Nexium course the following year. Claire Bronfman is another crucial player in this case, so let's take a look into her history. Born in 1979 to Edgar Bronfman Sr. and Rita Webb, who later changed her name to Georgiana. She is the heiress to the Seacrum's liquor fortune. Her parents had an on-again, off-again relationship. They married and divorced twice while their daughters were young. Sarah is the eldest of the two, born in 1976. Claire once had an equestrian career, competing in places like Mill Street Indoor International Horse Show, CSIA Eindhoven, and Samsung Nations Cup Series, to name a few, between 1999 and 2002. There were other places that she had competed in, but those are just some to name a few. It is reported that 3,700 people had attended ESP classes by 2003. A list of noteworthy people who have participated in these seminars by this time, by 2003, include Sheila Johnson, who is a businesswoman, co-founder of BET, CEO of Salamander Hotels and Resorts, and the first billionaire African-American, Stephen Cooper, Stephen or Stephen Cooper, everyone pronounces that name differently. So it's either Stephen or Stefan. He was a former CEO of Enron, former Surgeon General Antonia Novello, Anna Cristina Fox, who was the daughter of former Mexican President Vicente Fox, and actresses Linda Evans, Grace Park, and Nikki Klein. These are all people that had reportedly attended at least one ESP class by 2003. So by the end of 2003, Nexium appeared to have a lot of accusations about being called a cult. I found this part interesting because there were so many signs of this already at this stage that was claimed in this article, which was written in a major publication about these allegations, but nothing came from it. And I think that, I think this was when many things started to ramp up for Nexium. All of these influential and powerful people in the world were attending their ESP classes. So once once those people start attending and word gets out and they start recruiting others, I mean, of course, that place is going to get big, right? Before we get into this article, I'm trying to go a little bit in order here. <laughs> so we're going to first look at this mysterious disappearance of a follower that also occurred in 2003. A 35-year-old environmental consultant, Kristen Marie Snyder, paid $7,000 to participate in Alaska's 16-day personal development course. 
These courses were prevalent in this organization, which I witnessed in the documentary Seduced Inside the Nexium Cult, a four-part miniseries in Star's original, as well as the docuseries on HBO called The Vow. This is how they found new recruits who would eventually scout out new recruits to join for their next seminar, and so on. The organization would host a however many day intensive module. So some would be five, some would be 16, and so forth. And then you had to pay thousands of dollars to attend these. It is widely believed by many cult experts that this is when the brainwashing begins. So many of the cult experts believed that during these intensive modules, this is when they would start their uh, brainwashing. And it can be seen, you can see this as evidence in the Seduced Inside the Nexium Cult documentary. You can actually see this. The um... Snyder meets with Keith Raniere and other Nexium members in New York. After this meeting, she signed up for another 16-day course in Anchorage, Alaska. During the 10th day of this second course, February 6, 2003, Snyder claimed she was pregnant with Ranieri's baby. Ranieri's baby. <gasps> oh, sorry, I was laughing. <laughs> the coaches instructed Snyder's partner, Heidi Clifford, not to bring Snyder to the hospital. Throughout many of the victims, it has been stated by many of the victims that they were allegedly told any time they wanted to go see a doctor or go to a hospital, the coaches and stuff in Nexium and the higher-ups in Nexium would tell them, no, do not go to the doctor. No, we will take care of it. After the coaches had instructed Snyder's partner, Heidi Clifford, not to bring Snyder to the hospital, that was the last time anyone saw Snyder. Her vehicle was found 120 miles from Anchorage in Seaward, Alaska, Two days later, it is reported that the police found a note written by Snyder claiming that she was brainwashed and that the emotional center of her brain was killed or turned off. The note allegedly from Snyder continued that her external skin still had feeling, but her internal organs were rotting, and she apologized, saying, I'm sorry, life. I didn't know I was already dead. May we persist into the future. It was also reported that another page was written by Snyder, stating, no need to search for my body. To me, the notes seem odd. You cannot say Rhaenyra had any part in this, well, nothing I found shows any indication that he or other members of Nexium had any hand in Snyder's disappearance. Keith told his followers that Snyder was still alive and that she was living in Mexico, but Snyder is still considered a missing person to this day. Rhaenyra was featured on the cover of Forbes magazine, accompanied by the words, The World's Strangest Executive Coach. In October of 2003, the story was written by Michael Friedman, who entitled his work The Cult of Personality. The article was a blow to Nexium and its members. Friedman's article is eye-opening and compelling. He compares Rhaenyra to other self-help gurus of the time, with which the only thing he had in common with these other proclaimed self-help gurus was that they were all making money from the participants. So he was just making money off the participants. That's like the only thing that 
he had in common with these other self-help gurus. But according to the article, those who broke away from Nexium said they saw a darker, more manipulative side to Rhaenyra. The report further stated that former followers said he ran a cult-like program to break down his subjects psychologically, separate them from their families, and induct them into a bizarre world of messianic pretensions, idiosyncratic language, and ritualistic practices. So these were some heavy allegations from former members that were possible with Rhaenyra and Nancy's backgrounds. This article was written in 2003. And no one looked into the writer's claims. It makes you wonder why no one looked into these claims. So many lives could have been spared from this psychological and emotional turmoil these people inflicted on their victims. So back to the article's claims. Within the article, Bronfman Sr. said, I think this is a cult. It further explains that Bronfman was unsettled by the long hours and emotional and financial investment his daughters had devoted to Nexium. The Cult of Personality is worth reading as it gives much information about the group's questionable practices. Friedman noted that students had to pay up to $10,000 for five days of seminars and intense emotional probing, which occurred daily during 13-hour cram sessions. The followers were said to remove their shoes for class, learn intricate handshakes, as well as wear patented colored sashes in different variations, which signified their that person's rank within the organization. The seduced documentary also alleged and showed footage of Rhaenyra kissing each woman on the mouth. These attendees would also be required to recite a 12-point mission statement written by Rhaenyra. One instance of this, probably the most famous example by far, includes the idea, there are no ultimate victims, I will not choose to be a victim. Reciting such things is damaging. Nowadays, we have people who recite daily affirmations, you know, like, I am a good person, I am a good friend, I believe in myself. Things of that nature, right? Things that spark positivity. So seeing as how people recite these affirmations to better themselves, to have people repeat, I, cho I will not choose to be a victim, sounds sinister in this aspect. You can choose not to be a victim, or to not have a victim mentality when it comes to everyday circumstances. But what these members experienced did, in fact, make them victims. Because this this seems like, for them to say, you know, I am not a victim, I will choose not to be a victim, to know what happens behind the scenes and what happens later on, it was a way to set them up. So Vanity Fair then wrote an article about Forbes magazine's impact on the Nexium group. Rhaenyra, Salzman, and Sarah Bronfman believed the Forbes article would be a positive story. However, the group was more hurt by Bronfman Sr.'s words. The report in Vanity Fair stated that this was the turning point in Rhaenyra's relationship with Edgar Bronfman Sr., it was also noted that this was when Edgar Bronfman Sr. became Nexium's enemy. A witness during Rhaenyra's 2019 trial alleged that his computer was 
compromised after Bronfman spoke out against them so Nexium could monitor his emails for a number of years. His own children bugged his computer. That is just astonishing to me. Just because he said that he felt Nexium was a cult and he did like a little interview for that article, they considered him an enemy. That's just insane. So, I also want to put a note in here. I couldn't find when this video for Nexium followers was made, but I can only speculate that this happened after the 2003 cult allegations. Raniere and Salzman actually made a video about why Nexium was not a cult. So, yeah, there's that little red flag right there. <laughs> in 2005, Mark Vicente and wife Bonnie joined Nexium. Now, they weren't married when they joined Nexium, but they met and they met within the Nexium program and they got married while they were in Nexium. This is important because Mark Vicente is a filmmaker from South Africa. He was responsible for documenting everything about Renire since he believed everything about himself was that important. So, Vicente's wife, Bonnie, was a singer who joined Nexium when she was down on her luck with her career. Mark was actually the one who recruited Canadian actress Sarah Edmondson. She attended and entered the ESP program at Nexium in 2005 also. Edmondson participated in these classes when her career slowed. She thought that it would be a way to help spark her career again. Which is precisely what Nexium promises their participants. Her name will reappear later, as she is vital in this case. In 2006, Renire founded a subgroup called Jeunesse, specifically for women. Only the higher-ups in the organizations knew that the creator was a man, specifically Renire. You had to be a woman in Nexium to join. According to previous followers, the acronym Jeunesse did not stand for anything significant. One woman claimed Jeunesse was just a made-up word that would be defined by who they are. Its entire conception was to become a power movement for women. One of the most famous members of this subgroup was the American actress Alison Mack. Alison Mack is another pivotal person in this case. She was born July 29th, 1982 to Jonathan and Mindy Mack. She was born in Germany because her father was an opera singer who was working there at the time. She and her family moved to California when she was two. Mac started acting in commercials by the age of four and began attending the young actor's space at age seven. Her most noteworthy role was Chloe Sullivan from the show Smallville. Jeunesse used to have a website that Glamour Magazine once said resembled something similar to a bridal shower invitation. The website stated its purpose was to facilitate what it meant to be a woman and to discover the true essence of womanhood. As this was around the time when Twitter was founded, all Jeunesse participants were encouraged to use the hashtags what makes a woman and hashtag Jeunessing on social media platforms. The Jeunesse curriculum sounds like something that was meant to be empowering and that many women would be inclined to attend. However, according to witnesses, the curriculum reflected sexist views. The participant was 
taught that women were irresponsible, selfish, self-absorbed, and generally cast themselves as victims. One of the many Janus workshop videos showed Salzman lecturing to a group of women who were nodding. She tells the group, a lot of times the screaming of abuse is abuse in itself. There is some inconvenient thing happening and they wish it were different and they yell abuse. Janess wasn't the only subgroup to come from Nexium. Literally everything involving Rhaenyra had a pyramid scheme behind it. Seriously, everything was run in a pyramid style with him always on top. Other subgroups included yoga, self-defense, acting classes, and there was so much more. The only way to make money in Nexium was when you became a proctor, which meant that you would be wearing an orange sash. Senior proctors, such as Sarah Edmondson and Mark Vicente, wore green sashes. They were making a living running centers and enrolling people. They made commissions off of anyone they brought into the organization, and they made commissions off of those people who brought more in. These people believed they were helping people with this humanitarian work and making a living off of it by recruiting people. Many people thought they were able to rise through the rank based on merit. However, it was Keith pulling the strings based on preference. For example, the more beautiful and more slender women always seemed to rise up faster than the others which we will get more into that in a minute. But before we get into all of that, we're going to look into this. We have Janess, and now they are going to introduce Janess Trax. And with Trax, its purpose was to improve relationships and to understand gender roles. It taught how men were not naturally monogamous, and it was normal for men to want to sleep with many women. And the women were taught, you shouldn't question what your husbands or your boyfriends or your partners are doing. When any of the participants showed that they were against this ideology, they were told to take what is called an exploration of meaning, which is uh, EM. They would say, go take an EM course so you, you wouldn't, so you won't have that reaction anymore. This, this type of thing put a strain on many victims' relationships because the men would start exercising this belief or their newfound free will, many of the couples within Nexium were frequently swapping. Reportedly, reportedly one of the Janess Trek's topics was about rape, and Keith would allegedly blur the lines between rape and consent. They consistently and repeatedly reminded the victim was self-victimizing that the person who was screaming abuse was the one who was abusing or constantly complaining is the one who is abusing. So if you took this course, Keith Raniere or whoever was on top would consistently and repeatedly remind the victim was self-victimizing and that, that the person who is screaming abuse was the one who was abusing or constantly complaining, you're the one who's abusing. SOP was the acronym for Society of Protectors. It started off as the male counterpart to Jeunesse. This one kind of made me really upset while I watched it. This course really was wow. A voice clip of Rhaenyra during one of these meetings. It was played during one of the documentaries I watched. A voice clip of Rhaenyra captures one of his speeches, which says, Within parts of us are hungry fucking 
beasts. I mean, that's what we want to do is fuck. Fuck, fuck, fuck. I feel like fucking something today. God, I'm pissed. I want to fuck something, you know? If we conquer a woman, if we grab the thing we want to fuck, whatever it is, and fuck it, enjoyment. Started clapping and cheering after hearing this speech. I mean, I was just like, wait, what? (laughs) And also, I want to state that the Society of Protectors program, I think that was, if I remember correctly, I think that was formed in 2011. So it had been a while. It was actually a while before they decided to form that group. So what you see in Nexium is the same indoctrination and coercive persuasion process used by terrorist organizations such as ISIS or Al-Qaeda. Raniere was also captured on video stating that people bond through pain, not ha-ha happy. The SOP complete curriculum invited women to take this course with men. It was a six-day incentive for women to understand what it was like to be treated like little boys. Because they weren't raised as boys, they had to learn how little boys were disciplined. Every day, the women had to wear the biggest, baggiest clothes so that they didn't draw attention to their bodies. They couldn't eat, drink, or pee without permission. This was another scheme concocted by Renire to make the women more subservient to the men in the cult. They gave the females in the group disturbing nicknames and mantras. It was as if they were making the women in the group go through a hazing phase. So just another sick play by Renire to reach his ultimate goal. And the women were so brainwashed that they were actually grateful and loved their male coaches after this experience. The Bronfman sisters actually paid a lot to Nexium in damage control. They had sued Rick Ross, who is a well-known cult expert, for publishing an article on Nexium. They sued him for $10 million. It was quite shocking to see the extent of how far they would go to silence their critics. Ross's claims of what happened after that were equally appalling and shocking. Another point to add is that looking back on this case, you can find all of these allegations and media reports, but nothing was ever done. It is speculated that the big reason for this is because of the Bronfman sisters, which provided Nexium with a lot of money. The Bronfmans even made political contributions to local elected officials, which you know where that is headed, and They also acquired a strong legal team. All of these factors made victims reluctant to speak out against Nexium. The heiresses spent millions of dollars on litigation, private investigators, and surveillance. It goes to show that when you have a lot of money, many issues become swept under the rug. During these sessions, EMs, or lectures, they would sometimes have a participant wear a hat that measured their brainwaves. Dr. Brandon Porter was the person who conducted these experiments. He originally started these experiments to see how well the curriculum worked. 
It happened like this because Nancy Salzman claimed that their courses helped people with Tourette's and OCD. So these people seemed to really study hard and did their homework on how to coerce their victims into doing things. I'm not saying that they didn't help these people with their psychological problems, but nor am I claiming that any of them actually benefited from this. In the end, it was Porter's job to test whether this course actually worked. These caps with electrodes were used on women, also when showing them videos of the most graphic and disturbing images. The very last video these women were shown was of a Mexican cartel beheading and dismembering five live Mexican women. This part was so disturbing to me. I couldn't imagine going through this and watching this just for the sake of, just for the sake of scientific curiosity. Even cult experts were very disturbed by this bit of information. The ethicist course, it was an exclusive opportunity to be taught by Keith directly. In this course, Keith reportedly became obsessed about making his followers watch movies where people would sacrifice themselves for a greater cause. So in this aspect, it is very concerning about where this was heading. Many cults in the past have used such techniques to have their followers feel that it was necessary to sacrifice themselves for their leader. It is something that is always seen in cults. Everything up to this point has been conditioning and grooming. Now we are getting into the how far will you go for me territory of cults. You are constantly being told that you are only a victim if you choose to be one. You are constantly pushed into degrading situations during these intensive. If you ask a question or show any resilience, they have you take another course until you simply ignore that gut instinct. They made sure to break you down and rebuild you. In the process, taking away your critical thinking skills and taking away any fight you had. While these victims were spending all this money and time on these courses, at a certain point, their success stalls. Now, this is where I was talking about Raniere and all of the higher-ups seem to pick and choose who, who keeps climbing that ladder. Raniere actually set up this stalled achievement so the victim felt as though that there was something wrong with them, that they were letting themselves down because they were not being promoted even though they were giving these people their entire life savings. This is when Allison Mack comes into play. She would come to you and sweetly ask if everything was okay. How are you doing? That's when most people would tell her they feel discouraged because they aren't climbing the ladder. They felt stuck. This is another known tactic that cults use. They created that hindrance, but then they lend a hand to help you continue on your path to succeed. So they created that hindrance, but then they lend a hand to help you continue on your path. So in this instance, using Allison Mack as an example, Mack would then tell them, I really want to tell you about this thing, but I need something from you. I need collateral. I need something that is really important to you so that I know when I tell you this secret, you won't share it with somebody else. So, in the advanced courses, they introduce the concept of collateral. So, if you do not stick to a commitment you made, then you would have to pay a price for that. 
I saw this part in the documentary, like in Indian Oxenberg's case. She stated that she provided a damaging family secret, which she had to have written in a letter format and notarized. That way, if she ever went to anyone with what was going on, they could instantly send this letter to the media. She seemed to have trusted Allison, so she gives her this information and she tells her about DOS. DOS is a secret society of women that is unlike anything else in Nexium. Mac believed that none of the other programs could push Oxenberg, for example, to be more empowered like DOS could, which this is probably something that she told all of the people that she tried to recruit into this group. So Mac further told Oxenberg that Keith had no involvement in this. It was not a part of Nexium, but taught values that could help them with their goals within Nexium. It was simply women empowering women in a very specialized, deep way. The way that this secret is handled would have made any victim feel like they had a privilege to hear and learn of this secret society, which would propel them through the organization. It was only the first process of this initiation. Others were convinced in a more sinister way. So they were told, you're a slave to your fears and attachments. Wouldn't you rather be a slave to something that is more noble and to your actual values? This is the program to teach you how to do that. So there were approximately 150 women who were recruited into DOS. I found this also kind of crazy, like just, I don't want to say crazy because the victims are not crazy. I don't want them to like, if, if one of them decide to hear this, I'm not calling them crazy. I'm just saying that this whole situation is just insane to me because they had been preyed on for years and there's a lot of psychological stuff going on with that, which I am not licensed or have I studied any psychology. But again, they had been worked on for like years. But just to read that without having any other context, just reading that like, I'm gonna need some collateral, I would be like, personally, I would be like, um, no thank you. <laughs> But again, I'm not saying, you know, these people should have known better, but because we don't know everything they had went through to rationalize this in their mind. So DOS, D-O-S, was an abbreviation for the Latin phrase Dominus Obscuus Sororium, which roughly translates to Master of the Obedient Female Companions. And it's also worth noting that all of these victims were told what DOS stood for. But again, they thought that Rhaenyra was not a part of this at all. That's what they were told initially, that Rhaenyra had no part in it. So after they were recruited and had collateral on these people... In India's case, this is when Mac would start constantly calling her. She would tell her and her victims more and more about DOS, wanting them to make a lifetime commitment, which included 
ultimate obedience to Mac. So when she said ultimate obedience, this means if you wanted to have a boyfriend, you would have had to ask permission. If you wanted to buy a house, you would have to ask permission. If you wanted to have a child, you would have to ask. You would have to ask the person who recruited you for permission. If you wanted to move to another country, again, you would have to ask for permission. Anything you want and could freely do with your own life because it's your own right, you would be giving that up to the person who recruited you. Because in DOS, you give up your free will for the person who recruited you to start ruling over you. This is just an insane concept to think about. Even within this organization, it is crazy to think that people were okay with giving up their freedom. Even thinking about all the psychological warfare these people put on their victims, it is hard for me to understand and to relate to someone who would willingly give up their free will. You know, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know any of this stuff. That was just my personal opinion, and it's not something I've been through. According to Indian Oxenberg in the Seduced documentary, Mac further explained that Doss had a master-servant setup. It was a part of the program to feel uncomfortable, but to do it anyways. Mac told her to think of it more as a mentor-student relationship and told her that she would always be there for her. So, again, someone higher up was making her feel more comfortable with the decision. So at this point, many of us are probably thinking, how the hell does it get to this point? Why would, why would anyone bargain so much on this? So Rick Ross, who is a cult expert, pointed out that the women who were targeted were the ones who were worn out by the training the coursework, the intensives, and everything else that they were subjected to. So when they were at the point to making that commitment to DOS, their critical thinking abilities and that gut instinct weren't there anymore. So using um, India Oxenberg as an example, because I watched the documentary that was based specifically on her as well as the other people in Nexium, but mainly focused on her story, which we can gather that from her story that most of the other victims probably had a lot more similar experiences when it came to being recruited into DOS. So Max started India on small activities that she stated would make DOS feel more and more real. So every day she would have to admit something to Mac that made her feel vul vulnerable. She was especially interested in things that she was uncomfortable with sexually or intimately. And really, when it came to the, like sexual stuff, they were looking for bondage and stuff like that. There was also a weight requirement. So if you were heavier, then you needed to lose weight. If you didn't, you would need to go to Albany, New York, where the Nexium headquarters was located to spend 30 days. This even went so far as having to text the person who recruited you saying good night master or good morning master. Another thing 
was that if you failed any of your tasks you were given or you messed up something or you you disappointed your master, there were consequences. Some of the consequences was like taking a cold shower and, you, you know, just ridiculous things. They would have you counting calories. You could only, you know, take so much. And that was a part of keeping their hold on these victims. Because if you're starving, you're definitely not going to be thinking clearly. After doing all of these tasks, the end game was always the same. Seduce Rhaenyra. In Dos, Keith was the Grand Master. So he went from being Vanguard to Grand Master. So he went from being Vanguard in Nexium to Grand Master in Dos. He was the master over Allison Mack, Monica Duran, Rosa Laura Junko, Nikki Klein, Daniela Padilla, Lauren Salzman, Loretta Garza, and one more anonymous woman. So then these women on the first line, like Allison Mack, would recruit other women, making themselves their master while Keith was the puppet master. The first line would include all of those just named. In the group, masters recruited slaves who became masters if they brought in more people. Doss targeted wealthy and well-to-do women, including celebrities. Slaves were subjected to forced fasting, or physical punishment when they didn't promptly obey orders, such as regularly texting their masters. Mac was a prominent recruiter. She was accused of targeting groups such as college sororities. She also took credit for the branding ritual that we are about to get into. So in the fall of 2016, Mac brought her recruits on a little trip, telling them that it was for fun, bonding, and maybe even studying some DOS-related things. However, she later revealed to the group that this trip wasn't just for fun. She had all of the, her recruits stand naked together while Mac took a picture, then sent it to Keith. According to Oxenberg, if they questioned these acts, Mac would become scary and punish them in demoralizing ways. They would have to give Mac monthly collateral, and if they missed the deadline, there would be consequences. Many times, there wasn't anything left to add as collateral. How could someone have something newly embarrassing to provide monthly, or even just something that, or be considered important or crucial enough to be used as collateral. So they were instructed to make stuff up. So the women would eventually just start uploading more explicit photographs of themselves because in reality if you make up a horrible lie and you did do something against the higher ups wishes then you wouldn't only be affecting yourself if they leaked these stories out to the media 
you could be ruining someone else's life. So many of these women just started uploading explicit photographs of themselves instead of making up stories that could eventually hurt others. The punishments from these masters would escalate. So they would purchase BDSM materials such as dog crates, shock collars, among other things. And still, these people were brainwashed to believe that this was for their own personal growth and they would gain from this experience. Basically, if you were uncomfortable with it, then you were conquering your fear by just doing it. So at this point in my research, I have to stress how annoyed and aggravated I became just as an outsider looking in. It is very difficult to relate to how a person could rationalize these actions in their mind, but I guess stranger things have happened, and I do not want the victims from Nexium or any cult for that matter, to feel bad about themselves. I don't want them to live in the past questioning their life choices. I want them to move on from this experience with clarity and live long, healthy, and happy lives. Because as I have said, I am just someone who is looking in after the whole ordeal happened. So back to the morbid side of Alice and Mac. India reported that Mac used to chastise or punish herself by wearing something called a calice. This is a chain or strap with small spikes in it that is strapped to the body. Most commonly, it is worn around the thigh. So when she felt like she needed to be punished, she would wear this, which is, which is something that is described as sharp, painful, and itchy. Also, when another first liner who was a higher up in the Nexium cult needed to be punished, Mac paddled her. And I'm not talking like little tiny paddles. I mean, she was just going after it. It did not even matter what your rank was because it was technically DOS was outside of Nexium, so I guess rank within Nexium wouldn't really matter. Punishment ran deep in this cult. One example of Keith's most cruel punishments can be seen in the case of a woman named Daniela. Daniela and her entire family moved from Mexico to Albany and became deeply involved in Nexium. He coerced Daniela into a sexual relationship in 2010, but he was also having a sexual relationship with her two sisters, all underaged at the time. They were not discussing this with each other, or anyone for that matter. When she stated that she had a crush on someone who wasn't Rhaenyra, he told her that she had to remain confined inside a townhouse until she made amends. Rhaenyra accused Daniela of an ethical breach. Lauren Salzman was put in charge of monitoring Daniela and enforcing that confinement to help her learn from her mistake. Daniela described her Spartan conditions as a room with blacked out windows with only a mattress on the floor, a pen, and paper. Daniela was only allowed to speak to Salzman. 
Other family members were instructed to shun her. They even went as far as leaving food outside the door for her. She was confined to a room for almost two years. The craziest part is that there was no lock on the door. She could have just got up and walked out on her own. No one was stopping her. No one barricaded her in that room. So why didn't she just leave? This is something that baffles a lot of people. But this is how much control Rhaenyra and Nancy had over their victims. These victims believed that it was the right thing to do. And if they go against what is expected of them, the world would come crashing down on them. While she was in confinement, Daniela would send Rhaenyra letters pleading to be let out. But he would brush it off as her having a tantrum and instructed Nancy Salzman to ignore it. Her confinement ended in 2012 after she almost attempted suicide, but instead decided on leaving her family home. After escaping her captivity, Daniela went to a volleyball game to confront Rhaenyra. Rhaenyra tried to run and hide from her. She was later escorted out of the Nexium community and was left at the Mexico border. Daniela didn't have her paperwork or identification. She had $80 and she was just let go. It was also reported that during this time, all three sisters had become impregnated by Rhaenyra and were encouraged to have abortions. Camilla, Daniela's sister, was 15 years old at the time. She started engaging in sexual relationship with Keith. She first met Rhaenyra when she was 13 and started a sexually abusive relationship with him when she was 15, which continued for 12 years. She accused Rhaenyra of having such a hold on her that she had developed an eating disorder, self-harming, and attempted suicide. In 2016, DOS started to ramp up. This is when all of the slaves within DOS were told they needed to start bringing in other members. Rhaenyra envisioned DOS of being comprised of thousands of women, and one day they would have a DOS member as an elected official. It is speculated that he wanted to have power at every single level, including the government. A voice recording of Rhaenyra's state the slaves should look also to really find women of influence. I imagine, for example, for example, we could change the presidential vote of the United States in four years or something. He believed that he would have all of this power and all of this control because of all the collateral he would own on everybody. So it came a day when the second line was required to start trying to enroll people into DOS. If Rhaenyra or Mac found out that you were not actively trying to get people to enroll, there were punishments. If you did not meet a certain amount of enrollments by a certain deadline, then you were failing your master, and they would receive consequences if you did not enroll victims quickly. If you resisted or had any reservations about recruiting people into DOS, the response from Rhaenyra and Mac and any other first-liners was, go get an EM on that. So if you fought against anything they were doing, you were sent to take 
and EM until that feeling was gone. You had no reactions to this concept. In January 2017, India Oxenberg recounted Mac telling her that there was going to be a ceremony that she needed to be a part of. She also revealed that the ceremony would leave a mark on everyone's bodies and it would be a permanent commitment to DOS. All of the first line slaves had already done this and now it was the second line's turn. The victims were told that they would be branded that this was part of the sorority. So this branding would be a constant reminder on your body that this was not only a lifetime serious vow, but it was also the most important relationship in your life. According to Rick Ross, these women felt that they were demonstrating their absolute commitment to each other and to the philosophy that they were indoctrinated to believe. In this type of environment, accepting the brand becomes logical because they see it as their commitment based on all the training that they went through. Many of the victims that were branded, including India herself, she stated that she was told the branding would be a symbol of the elements, fire, earth, water, sky, and it would be a bonding experience for herself and the other women, and also a practice of building character. So the details in the brand were very clever, to be honest. If you look at it, it does look like a sky with a mountain, earth, and water. It could easily have been passed off as that. However, looking at it from the side, you could see Rhaenyra's initials, K-R, and also you could see the initials A-M. They were told that it was maybe the size of a quarter. Dr. Danielle Roberts was in Oxenberg's group and she was taught how to brand. One by one, the girls in the group walked into Mac's bedroom naked. India stated that she would be instructed to lay down on the table. One woman was instructed to hold her feet while another was told to hold her hands so she wouldn't start convulsing. While she lay there, Mac was reading from the ceremony script. And you can hear, the best slaves derives the highest pleasure from being her master's ultimate tool, independent of use. Dr. Roberts placed a stencil on India's skin and began to trace the stencil with a cauterizing pen. She was the first person Danielle Roberts ever branded. Okay, my personal thoughts here. When I heard that these victims were branded. I was thinking about how people use hot, you know, those hot iron rods that they place in a fire until it's red hot. Cauterizing pen sounds more traumatizing. I mean, with the cauterizing pen, it would take longer because it is similar to receiving a tattoo. This just sounds cruel, like a lot more cruel than to just brand someone using a hot poker. I mean, it's probably more sanitary. It's probably easier with a cauterizing pen because you can make intricate designs, but I don't know. I'm not an expert on branding people or cattle. So anyway, Oxenberg recounted that the smell from her burning flesh was so intense that it filled 
the entire townhouse. She also stated that she did not feel the pain immediately. However, when the pen would reach the edges of the lines or to an area close to her bone, it made her jolt. She could tell that this brand was going to be larger than just a quarter. India stated that she did not remember much from this experience, but what she mostly remembers was Mac repeating the words, feel the pain, feel the love. And she had them repeat these words to her. According to the documentary, this is what Mac was saying during the branding and also having the women repeat to her in turn. Feel the pain, feel the love. Your greatest joy is to surrender completely all things in all ways. I surrender my life, mind, body, and possessions for unconditional use. The branding lasted approximately 30 minutes, but it wasn't over for India because she had to watch the other women have the same thing done to them. Once the adrenaline wore off, the pain started to creep in. Oxenberg remembers that when Rainiere first saw her brand, he would comment on how well it healed. He showed how pleased he was by it. He would touch it, tracing it with his fingers, and he stated that he liked how tiny she looked. In April of 2017, Catherine Oxenberg received a phone call from Mark Vicente's wife, Bonnie, who left Nexium and told her that she needed to save India. Between like March and April, I think it was, a lot of Nexium members started becoming suspicious of some of the some of the other people within the group because these women were coming up to them as telling them, you know, oh I know this secret, but you know, I can't I can't tell you much about it unless you give me collateral. And so these people were like Okay, collateral, um, no thanks, or let me think about it, not really. And some of these other people started seeing these members, and I mean, they were, they were skinny. They looked malnourished, their hair was falling out. I mean, they didn't look healthy. So a lot of Nexium members, when they saw these people, they were like, what's going on? And somehow, word started to spread about DOS. Not entirely. I'm going to get to the big reveal of DOS later. But but in April of 2017, Catherine Oxenberg received a phone call from Mark Vicente's wife, Bonnie, who left Nexium and told her that she needed to save India. Bonnie told her that India would not leave of her own volition and told Catherine everything about DOS. Bonnie further revealed that the slaves were sleep-deprived, they were doing penances, and they were starving the girls. She even told India's mother that some of the women were now branded, and she believed that India had been one of them. Personal thought, watching this part was so unbelievably sad for me. This mother was being told what was really going on, and the desperation she felt to get her daughter out of this cult was so heartbreaking. As a mother myself, I couldn't imagine being isolated from my daughter, let alone having these things happen to her. I also couldn't fathom just just how heartbreaking it is to have a someone call you on the phone and tell you all of these horrible things that are that is happening to your child. 
To get India out of the cult, Catherine told her to come home to Los Angeles for her birthday, which India was planning on doing because she had to tell her slaves that it would soon be time for them to be branded. During her visit, her family would comment on how thin she was, and India confided in her mom that she had not had her period in over a year. So according to the documentary, Catherine kept the information Bonnie had shared with her a secret trying to find the best time to have a talk about her commitment to Nexium and needing to leave it behind. Her mother schedules her an appointment with an OBGYN because she is still a concerned mother and her health was very concerning. This is when her mother thought it would be the perfect time to enlighten her daughter about what was happening. Of course, this only made her daughter dig deeper into the cult because she was told that her mother was against her. She was told that her mother would say horrible things. So Catherine was left to fight this battle to get her daughter out of Nexium on her own because India managed to convince her both her father and her stepfather that she was fine, that nothing was going on. India had stated that her dads did not like Rhaenyra, but they supported her. So Catherine was told she was overreacting by India's fathers. However, she continued trying to contact lawyers, judges, the New York police, the Albany FBI. She was trying to contact all of these people to fight for her daughter, but they wouldn't help her because she was over 18, so she was legally a consenting adult. Even though Catherine expressed that she had provided damning collateral, this would completely negate the theory that she was consenting to this treatment, but it still didn't matter. Come to find out, in the United States, there are very little laws against coercive control. So Catherine even stated that her daughter was a victim, but if India participated in someone being branded, she was worried about how that would affect her being seen as a victim. Because understandably, she was worried that given time, her daughter could face prosecution. She could be held responsible for hurting someone else. In May 2017, things really started to unravel for Nexium and DOS. First, Bonnie had left, then Mark Vicente, her husband, quickly left after catching wind of the DOS group and the branding situations. Not long after that, actress Sarah Edmondson and her husband left the organization. Edmondson and her husband were very loud about why they left. Her husband even confronted Lauren Salzman about his wife being branded. Everyone that was present at Nexium that day heard the entire conflict. There was a voice recording of Edmondson's husband that could be heard on the documentary where he states, the definition of personal growth isn't getting fucking branded. This is criminal shit. Branding my fucking wife? So it was not normal for people that senior, that high up in rank, to just resign like Edmondson and her husband or how Vicente did. This is when Catherine Oxenberg and Nexium defectors reached out to Frank Parlato of the Frank Report. They told him about the branding and he began posting about it on his website. That's how the case was blown wide open. Learning about DOS 
and the only way in was to provide collateral. This is when people in Nexium not affiliated with DOS started to see what was going on right under their very noses. So news of this story happened during the whole Harvey Weinstein fiasco and the whole Me Too movement. So now this case was relevant. This case started receiving attention. On the front page of New York Times was a picture of Sarah Edmondson showing her branded scar. All evidence of collateral, texts about DOS, any communications with Keith were to be destroyed as reporters were bombarding the Nexium headquarters with questions. While exposing DOS is a great thing, it affected the people who were not a part of it. They were cast as being part of a sex cult when they were only a part of Nexium, which I think is a distinction that needs to be made. But on top of that though, I mean, there is a distinction there because Nexium has been accused of being a cult because of its cult-like practices and stuff. But the whole thing is that because of Nexium, DOS was created and DOS is the sex cult within Nexium. But also, it also becomes a question. If the person would have stayed in Nexium, couldn't they have eventually came into the secret society if they were a woman? Which that is something that kind of is speculative. So we went through like the Society of Protectors and Jeunesse. A lot of people have theories about it and it's widely speculated that the Society of Protectors, because it was all men, it was kind of like they were to protect the cult. It was kind of like having your own regime, basically, within Nexium. If these people had stayed, the men would become the protectors, and if DOS was a th still a thing, then DOS would be all of the female sex slaves that were Raniere's, and he would always put the Society of Protectors out in front of them. Again, it was not proven to be like that, but it is purely speculation. I mean, I think it's something that would be plausible, but again, we don't know. We don't know that for certain. That is just something that's hearsay. So Catherine Oxenberg kept putting herself into the forefront of the media storm, talking about India and the cult, which of course made Renire mad. Unfortunately, it made India mad too. However, Oxenberg started compiling evidence against Raniere and letters from loved ones of these victims about why the government needs to be involved. To Catherine's surprise, the government was already investigating these claims. Moira Penza is a lead prosecutor who read the New York Times article that featured Sarah Edmondson and felt that there was, there had to be more criminal acts being performed. She started digging and acquired a team of FBI agents in her office. Within days, they were interviewing witnesses and victims. She did not publicly identify themselves because they feared Raniere would escape. So they were trying to fly under the radar to make sure no one that was affiliated with Nexium would know that they were conducting this investigation because Raniere, he seemed like a flight risk and as you'll soon find out, basically was. <laughs> so Catherine was compiling all of this evidence. She sent it off to authorities. She received a message from her lawyer not long after sending her evidence off stating that Penza 
stating that she did not have to carry this burden anymore because the government were moving in aggressively. In November 2017, Keith fled to Mexico. He told his followers, the ones that were still there, that he needed to leave to protect himself because people were threatening his life. On February 14th, 2018, an arrest warrant was put out for Ranire. Ranire had all of his first liners come to Mexico to participate in a ceremony, which this ceremony was a group sex act, where he wanted all of them to perform a blowjob. But before this could take place, Nikki Klein posted a picture of herself at a Puerto Vallarta landmark. And that's how the government located Ranire, because one of his first liners decided it would be a great idea. That was just insane. Okay, she, she, she couldn't have been the sharpest tool in the tool shed, but you know, okay. <laughs> it is still good that it ended up that way. And that is my personal opinion that she wasn't the sharpest tool in this tool shed. So on March 26th, 2018, the FBI enlisted the help of the Mexican Federal Police to deport Ranire instead of going through the normal extradition channels. So with bulletproof vests and machine guns, the police surrounded Ranire's luxury villa. The police kicked down the door to Ranire's bedroom, holding Lauren Salzman on the floor with three machine guns pointed at her, while they found a cowering Ranire hiding in a closet. He was detained in New York on a $10 million bail, which was paid and put into a trust by an unnamed third party at the time of his arrest. From what we learned earlier, we can only speculate that this was paid for by the Bronfman sisters. It's not proven, it's just speculated. Of course, he was a flight risk. That's why the bail was put so high. So there were many speculations that he could use Claire Bronfman's private jet to escape to her island in Fiji and no one would be able to touch him. However, the judge declined his bail. That's why it was just put into a trust. He couldn't be released on bail because there were speculations he was too much of a flight risk. In the eyes of the government, he already proved that he was a flight risk by running off to Mexico. The way Penza looked at Nexium, she looked at it as if it was a criminal organization, kind of like the mob, kind of like the mafia. So she could not only prosecute the leader, but she would also be able to prosecute the inner circle, the ones who committed crimes for Ranire and needed to be held accountable. The unsealed complaint accused Ranire of a variety of crimes related to DOS, including sex trafficking, conspiracy for sex trafficking, and conspiracy to commit forced labor. The complaint alleged that at least one woman was coerced into sex with Ranire, who forced DOS members to undergo the branding ritual alleged by former DOS member Sarah Edmondson and others. Ranire's federal racketeering trial began on May 7, 2019. The charged acts included sexual exploitation of Camilla as a minor and a 
and possession of child sexual abuse material depicting her, sex trafficking and forced labor of person named Nicole, attempted sex trafficking of a person named Jay, identity theft against Edgar Bronfman, James Luperfitto, Ashana Chinoa, Mariana, and Pam Caffritz. I'm sorry if I mispronounced any of those names. Subjecting Daniela to document servitude for labor and services. Conspiracy to alter records for use in an official proceeding. Sex trafficking conspiracy, forced labor conspiracy, racketeering conspiracy, and wire fraud conspiracy. That is a lot of things to be accused of. Ahead of his sentencing, prosecutors submitted a number of Ranieri's communications and disciplinary issues in prison as evidence of remorselessness and that he continues to control his followers. The communications included Ranieri instructing his followers to have Alan Dershowitz, the attorney who successfully negotiated a non-prosecution agreement of the late Jeffrey Epstein, speak on his behalf. Dershowitz did not comment on that matter. As sentencing proceeded, federal prosecutors asked for life imprisonment for the for the severity of Ranieri's crimes and his lack of remorse. They said he showed a complete lack of acceptance of responsibility for his crimes and argued that he would continue to commit crimes if released. Prosecutors said Ranieri has stayed in touch with members of his Nexium organization since his conviction, casting himself in emails as a victim and encouraging them to keep the group alive. On October 27, 2020, federal judge Nicholas Garofis, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that that last name correctly either, I'm sorry, sentenced Ranieri to 120 years in prison and gave him a $1.75 million fine to begin serving his 120-year sentence. Ranieri was first transferred to United States Penitentiary, Lewisburg, a medium security penitentiary, and then to the United States Penitentiary, Tucson. The facility in Tucson, Arizona is noted as the sole facility in the federal prison system that is both specially designed for sex offenders and also at the maximum security level. On July 20th, 2021, Ranieri made a virtual appearance from his Tucson, Arizona prison cell for a hearing on restitution, the last remaining material from the trial. Imprisoned co-defendant Claire Bronfman paid attorneys Mark Fernick and Jeffrey Lickman to represent him. Judge Garofis ruled that 21 victims of Ranieri should receive a total of $3.46 million in restitution. This included payments to cover the cost removing the DOS-related scarification, ongoing mental health care, and making labor trafficking victims whole. The judge's order also stated that all lower-ranking DOS members are statutorily entitled to the return of their collateral and it ordered Ranieri to effectuate that return to the fullest extent practicable. 
Due to Fifth Amendment concerns, this order was stayed until 60 days after a ruling of Ranieri's appeal to the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Ranieri gave notice of appeal of both his conviction and sentence to the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in November 2020. Oral arguments were heard on May 3, 2020. The circuit upheld the decision and rejected the appeal on December 9th, 2022. Judge George Jose A. Cabranes wrote, Ranire has failed to persuade us that there is insufficient evidence to sustain his convictions. However, the court cases and appeals are not over for him. He and a lot of still-devoted Nexium members are very sue-happy. In January 2020, Ranire and several other Nexium leaders were named as defendants in a civil lawsuit filed in the federal court by 80 former Nexium members. The lawsuit details allegations of fraud and abuse and charges the Nexium organization with being a pyramid scheme, exploitation of its recruits, conducting illegal human experiments and making it physically and psychologically difficult and in some cases impossible to leave the coercive community. This case is ongoing as of March 2023. Allison Mack was arrested by the FBI in Brooklyn on April 20th, 2018. The charges against her included sex trafficking, sex trafficking conspiracy, and forced labor conspiracy. Prosecutors accused Mack of concealing Ranieri's status as the leader of DOS, as she coaxed recruits to provide highly damaging personal information, nude photos, and rights to personal assets. Mac directly or implicitly required her recruits to engage in sexual activity with Ranire. On April 24, 2018, she was released from the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn on a $5 million bond and held under house arrest under the custody of her parents in California. Under the original indictment, Mac faced a minimum of 15 years to life in prison if found guilty. In March 2019, it was revealed in court that Mac and the other defendants in the case were in active plea negotiations. As Ranire appeared in court to plead not guilty, to additional child pornography charges related to the case. On June 30th, 2021, Mac was sentenced to three years in prison and three years of probation, 1,000 hours of community service, and a fine of $20,000. In September 2021, Mac reported to Federal Correctional Institute Dublin in Dublin, California. She was released early on July 3rd, 2023, after serving 21 months of her three-year sentence. Claire Bronfman was arrested by federal agents on July 24th, 2018 in New York City and charged with money laundering and identity theft in connection with Nexium activities. She pled not guilty in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of New York in Brooklyn. She was released on a $100 million bond and placed on house arrest with electronic monitoring. On April 19th, 2019, Bronfman pled guilty to conspiracy to conceal and harbor illegal aliens for financial gain and fraudulent use of identification. The prosecution asked for five years in prison and she agreed to forfeit $6 million. 
On September 30th, 2020, she was sentenced to six years, nine months in prison by a federal judge. In addition, she was fined $500,000 and was ordered to pay restitution to victim Jane Doe 12, $96,605. Bronfman is currently in Federal Correctional Institute, Danbury. In March 2018, FBI agents raided Salzman's house, located on Oregon Trail in Waterford, New York, on a search warrant and seized large amounts of cash totaling $520,000 stuffed in bags, envelopes, and shoeboxes, including one shoebox that held more than $390,000. Agents also seized numerous computers, data storage devices, cameras, various mobile phones, and Blackberries, and small amounts of Mexican and Russian currency. In March 2019, Salzman pled guilty to charges of conspiracy racketeering under the jurisdiction of the United States District Court of the Eastern District of New York. In September 2021, Salzman was sentenced to 42 months in prison and a $150,000 fine for racketeering conspiracy. Salzman also agreed to forfeit several real estate properties, more than $500,000 in cash, and a Steinway Grand Piano. Salzman reported to Federal Correctional Institute Hazleton in West Virginia on February 21st, 2022. A federal judge sentenced Lauren Salzman to five years probation in July 2021 following her extraordinary assistance to prosecutors. She pled guilty to racketeering and racketeering conspiracy charges, testified against Ranire, and assisted prosecutors who advanced for her lesser sentence. In the end, I hope the victims find solace and can move on with their lives. Unfortunately, some of the followers remain loyal to Ranire and Nexium to this day. But Nexium is no longer an established organization, as the U.S. government seized a Delaware company that owned the rights to Nexium's ideologies. Again, I would like to state that anyone involved in this case, if they were not prosecuted and charged by law enforcement in courts, is clearly alleged or speculated. All sources on this case have been listed in the show notes, and I only reported on what was seen or watched. If I stated something that was of my own personal opinion, I made it known that it was my opinion and not to be taken as fact. And that is it for today's case about Nexium. Tell me what your thoughts are about this episode. Do you think that the perpetrators received the punishment that they deserved? Do you think that the victims will heal from this? I hope hearing about this case will help raise awareness of the seriousness of cults and provide some insight into what to watch for in any kind of organization. Thank you for listening. I know this episode was pretty long, and so thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If there is a case you would like me to cover, please comment or send me an email, which can be found in the show notes for your requests. Stay safe and I will see you for the next episode. Bye!